Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. first lecture tonight is Tom McCombs Taylor, who brings with him a reputation, uh, who I could say, of course, doesn't need an introduction. I'll give him one anyway. I'll give him one because I think the most vital thing that I can do for McCombs tonight, given that he's given his time in this way, is to, to, to promote a very recent book that he's published with Oxford University Press, the title of which, and I'll get this right, Seven Days of Nectar. Contemporary oral performance of the Bhagavata Purana. Bhagavata Purana. Not bad. You not say bad. it. You yeah. say it. Bhagavata Purana. Bhagavata Purana. It'll do. It'll do. That's okay. what it is. What is not written on your website, though, Macamus, is the fact that you are also the author of a field guide to birds of the <laughs> ACT. Is that not right? That is indeed right. right. And, and, and very nicely pronounced. Too. And it do, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I can get ACT right. Uh, and, and, you are, and your horticultural talents, uh, because he brought with him tonight lemons. <laughs> Let's hope his lecture is not the same. <laughs> Let's welcome McCombs Taylor. Yavat stasyanti giraya saritascha mahitale tavat ramayani katha Lokeshu pracharishyati. Yavat stasyanti girayaha, so long as the mountains stand. Saritascha mahitale, and the rivers flow on the surface of the earth. Tavat ramayani kata, lokeshu pracharishyati. May the story of Rama pervade humanity. As long as the mountains stand, as long as rivers flow on the surface of the earth, may the story of the Ramayana pervade humanity. There is a nice conceit in the Sanskrit literary tradition where an exposition begins with a verse that contains the main premise of the exposition that follows. So the exponent sings a little verse like that, and then his interlocutors spontaneously call, Katametat, how is that? Katametat, now you can do this, I think this is a good opportunity for some interactivity, please, on the count of three. Katametat, one, two, three. Katametat, they all speak Sanskrit, that's amazing, Will. Where did you find such an esteemed audience? Excellent. It is my job this evening to answer your question, how is that? How is it that Ramayanam pervades humanity? How has it pervaded humanity in the past? What's this text about? And how will it continue to fulfill this role into the foreseeable future? I'm going to fulfill my responsibility in two stages this evening. Firstly, I'm going to give you a brief outline of the story itself, and then I'm going to talk about the social and political role that the text has filled in Indic society and indeed more broadly across the world. So very briefly the story. In the city of Ayodhya there lived a king called Dasharatha. You know the story already. Dasharatha had how many sons? Four sons. Their names were Rama, Lakshmana, Bharata, Shatrukna. Dasharatha had how many wives? Three. He had three wives. His four sons were perfect, epic heroes. They were strong. They were martial. They were handsome. They were truthful. They excelled in all of the martial arts. They could ride elephants. They could ride horses. None were greater bowmen than they. 
being epic heroes. In fact, we don't hear very much about their childhood, but there is one very important episode that I will relate to you. Pre-modern Indic society was founded on the idea of sacrifice. This sacrifice was undertaken by holy men who lived in ashrama. You know this word, ashrams. They lived in ashrama in the forest and they ritually offered ghee. What's ghee? Ghee is clarified butter. They offered offerings of clarified butter into a consecrated fire. The fire carried the ghee to the deities and nourished the deities. The deities were pleased and therefore provided everything that society needs. Sunshine, rain in season, strong suns, victory over enemies and so forth. So here we have the ascetics, the holy men offering ghee into a sacred fire in the forest. But during Dasharatha's reign, Rakshasas came and disrupted the sacred sacrifice. What is a Rakshasa? A Rakshasa is a night-going demon. They are lascivious. They are vicious. They eat human flesh when they can get it. And they disrupt the sacrifice by destroying the fire and polluting the area. So, Rakshasas are a problem. Now, the one story that is often told of Rama's childhood is an irascible sage by the name of Vishvamitra came to the court of Dasharatha and asked that the two sons, Rama and Lakshmana, accompany him to his ashrama. Rama, this is, this, this is, these boys are said to be quite young and this is fiercely resisted by Dasharatha and indeed by the queens and yet they are forced to, to let these two young boys go out into the forest where with their bows they manage to subdue the demons, subdue, they slay the Rakshasas, they save the sacrificial fire and so uh, the world is able to continue along its path. So that's, that's an important episode that you often hear retold in the lives of, of two of those young heroes. They return to the palace and the next episode, basically we, we fast forward until Rama is of marriageable age. Now, in this, this epic imaginary, in this Sanskritic imaginary world, the way that marriages in royal families are conducted is the process called Svayamvara. Svayamvara means self-choice. Basically, a king with an eligible daughter invites neighbouring princes in. The princes compete in some sort of athletic games and prowess. They demonstrate their prowess and then the, the princess chooses whomsoever she wants. Now, whether this actually happened or not is a moot point, but it's a very strong, uh, it's a very strong trope in, in Sanskritic literature anyway. Everyone knows what a Svayamvara is. So, uh, the, king, uh, the king, Janaka, held a Svayamvara for his sublimely wonderful, beautiful daughter, Sita. Sita, the perfect daughter. She's beautiful, she's talented, she is uh, calm, she is obedient, she has all of those Indic qualities that are very highly sought after. And uh, Rama, of course, comes to Sita's Svayamvara. At this particular Svayamvara, uh, the king Janaka sets the task that the bow of Shiva must be strung. Whoever, whichever prince manages to string this mighty bow, this bow that belonged to the god Shiva, will then win at least Sita's attention. In, she's supposed to get to choose, but anyway, it would definitely get her attention. So, of course, this being an epic, all of the other heroes fail. Of course, this being an epic, uh, Rama alone succeeds not only in lifting the bow of Shiva, not only in stringing the bow of Shiva, but under his mighty arms, the bow of Shiva actually breaks. It, and this is a, an incident that you often see in all forms of uh, Indic art, uh, music, dance, uh, performance. The breaking of Shiva's bow is one of the highlights of Rama's childhood. So what happens next? So we now have the perfect young couple. We've got Rama married to Sita. 
they return to Dasharatha's palace. Fast forward a few years, Dasharatha is now old. In true Indic style, he realises that his time has come and he is now of an age when he will retire to the forest and he will give up his kingdom to his eldest son, Rama. Consecration of Rama is underway, but there is a problem. And the problem is that Dasharatha's youngest wife, whose name is Kaikei, had received two boons in the past from Dasharatha. What is a boon? A boon is a wish. If I grant you a boon, you can then ask for anything you want. Boons are very, very important, again, in this Sanskrit imaginary universe. Boons and curses play off one another all the time. So, Kaikei had two boons from some previous kindness she had rendered to Dasharatha. And at the very day of Rama's consecration, she calls in her boons. Boon number one, my son, Bharata, not Rama, will become king. India being India, the Sanskrit imaginary being the Sanskrit imaginary, of course, King Dasharatha needs to honour this boon. So it will be Bharata who becomes king, not Rama. Boon number two, Rama will go into exile in the forest for 14 years. And of course, Rama, being the perfect son, would not go against his father's wishes or his stepmother's desires, and he and Sita humbly accept to go into the forest for exile for 14 years. Bharata rules in, very reluctantly, rules in Rama's stead, and as a symbol of Rama's uh, seniority and ascendance, what does Bharata do? He places on the throne the sandals that belong to Rama, as a symbol that indeed it is Rama who is ruling. Uh, Bharata is only the regent until Ra uh, Rama's return. Okay, so now we have Bharata ruling in the city in Ayodhya and we have Sita and uh, Rama accompanied by their faithful brother Lakshmana, the three of them living in the forest together. Now, every now and then in this talk I'm going to go like this. This means there is a special secret piece of information I'm about to impart, <laughs> all right? They travel through India uh, on the way to a place called Chitrakuta where Rama is to spend his exile and they cross the Ganges River. <laughs> they arrive in Chitrakuta where they build uh, a hut and this is where they are to live. They make their life in the forest as well as they, as well as they can and traditionally they, always said to wear, they are always said to wear bark garments. And I don't know how you wear bark garments. I sometimes think of, I, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of Tonga or something. Anyway, I don't know why they, they wear garments of bark. We're just going to have to accept that. Now, here comes an important event. A Rakshasi, a female Rakshasa called Shurpanaka. Demons always have really, really weird names. Shurpanaka is a very, very strange name. It means whose fingernails resemble winnowing baskets. Now, I actually don't know. I don't know what a winnowing basket looks like, but I bet it's really horrible to have fingernails that look like one. Anyway, Shurpanaka arrives at the ashrama with a specific goal. She has two goals. Firstly, she is going to seduce Lakshmana and Rama. Secondly, she is going to eat them. That is her plan. <laughs> Seduce, then eat. <laughs> now, Rama, of course, being the perfect epic hero, rejects her advances and mutilates her horribly, <laughs> disturbingly. Uh, Shurupanaka returns to Lanka. This is the capital city. This is the demons, the Rakshasa's capital city. She returns to Lanka and reports this outrage to her brother, Ravana. Ravana. The king, of the, Rakshan, uh, the king of the Rakshasas. Now, to get revenge on Rama, she believes the best thing to do is to get Ravana to seduce and abduct Sita. Ravana likes this idea. Ravana flies on his flying air-going chariot, his sky-going chariot, from Lanka to Chitrakuta, 
But there is a problem. He can't defeat Rama in battle, so he has to lure Rama away from the hut. He does this by means of a, a fellow demon called Maricha, who transforms himself into an irresistibly beautiful golden deer. The deer, the, the demon in the form of a deer, and this is a very, very famous incident, where, wherever you are, all the way throughout the Indic world, you'll see images of this golden deer uh, passing by the hut. It's a very famous image. So uh, the golden deer passes the hut. Uh, Sita, of course, sees the deer. And do you know how in French, the first sentence you learn is, is the pen of my aunt is on the table. In Sanskrit, the first sentence I teach is, Sita murgam ichiti. Sita desires the deer. We always say that. We always start with that. It's a nice, easy sentence. You can say this. Sita murgam ichiti. Everyone, please. Sita murgam ichiti. How good are These are really good. They're really good. Yeah. Sita, of course, desires the deer. He's, she sends Rama out to follow it. Rama follows the deer, not suspecting the trap. Lakshmana is left behind. The deer fabricates, he, he imitates Rama's voice and he calls, Lakshmana, Lakshmana, come, come. So Lakshmana is torn between staying in the hut uh, and protecting Sita or going to help Rama. And what he does, is, again, this is a very famous incident, he draws a circle around the hut and he says to Sita, you must not leave this circle. That circle is called? Lakshmana Rekha, it means the, the line of Lakshmana. And this, this, uh, this expression is actually used in Hindi today. It means a line that you must not cross. It's like, we, like the word deadline or something we use in English. Lakshmana Rekha, still today, is a line that must not be crossed. Now, what happens? We've got Ravana there. We, so we've got, at this point, we've got the golden deer off in the forest. We've got Rama chasing the golden deer. We've got Lakshmana off chasing this phantom voice of Rama. We've got Sita alone in the hut. And Ravana, the demon king, now disguises himself as a holy man. He comes to the door and he begs for alms. And of course, this being an epic, Sita steps outside the, Ramana, uh, the, the Lakshmana Rekha and is kidnapped by Ravana and is carried off again in his sky-going vehicle to his capital city of Lanka. Big disaster. So this is now, this is now the, sort of, uh, the, the peak of tension in the epic. What happens now? Rama and uh, Lakshmana, of course, are absolutely frantic. They are completely heartbroken. This is the worst thing. Losing a wife in the jungle to a demon is probably the worst <laughs> thing that could happen. Now, so they begin a search. And as they search, they come into contact with a wonderful monkey called? And another wonderful monkey called? Sugriva. They come in contact with the monkey king, Sugriva. Sugriva has a problem as well. Sugriva's wife has been stolen from him by his brother, Valin. As soon as Rama hears this, the, a bond between Sugriva and uh, Rama is, is very easily made. Rama undertakes to uh, find Sugriva's wife uh, and retrieve her. Uh, he does this, in fact, by, by shooting Valin in the back. This is actually a rather, controversial, uh, a rather controversial event. Firstly, shooting a monkey is not really a good look for a, for a warrior. Secondly, shooting a monkey in the back while you're hiding behind a tree is actually not terrifically epic. And, uh, <laughs> And right from the very, very earliest days that this text was written down, there's been a, a debate about, did Rama actually do a really good thing when he shot, <laughs> shot Valin? And, and it's been argued back and forth. Rama now has the monkey army. He has the monkey, the monkey army on side. Not only does he have uh, Sugriva, the monkey king, on side, he has the most wonderful helper and supporter in the form of Hanuman. Uh, Hanuman is a name I, that you may well know, a very, uh, a very uh, evocative uh, name in India now, and we'll come back to this in a minute. So we've now got Rama, Lakshmana, Sugriva, Hanuman, searching for Sita together. The monkeys send out search parties 
in all directions. They cover the whole of India, searching for Sita, and eventually Hanuman discovers Sita locked in a grove, locked in a garden in Ravana's palace in the city of Lanka. Uh, Hanuman offers to carry uh, Sita away. Sita refuses. She will only be carried by her own husband. Uh, Hanuman is captured by the demons uh, and to punish him, his tail is set on fire and then in a very, very popular uh, episode again, he, he jumps all the way around Lanka with his tail on fire, setting fire to the whole city as he goes. <laughs> he then uh, leaps back uh, to mainland India. He reports his finding to Rama. Rama is greatly relieved and they then raise an army of bears and monkeys. They move south throughout India. They build a bridge. This army of bears and monkeys build a bridge from the mainland of India to the island of Lanka, Sri Lanka. They build a bridge <laughs> to the island of Sri Lanka. There is a huge battle that goes on for many, many days. Eventually, to cut a very long story short, of course, Rama, Lakshmana, the monkeys and bears managed to defeat the demon hordes, the Rakshasa hordes. Rama is reunited with Sita, but it is not the joyous reunion you might expect. Why? Rama suspects that Sita has been sullied. She has lived in the house of another man. Therefore, it is possible that she is no longer chaste. They get back to Ayodhya, the capital city, and Sita is caused to undergo a trial by fire. She enters a fire, but Agni, the god of fire, recognises her purity, recognises her chastity, and saves her and brings her forth from the fire unscathed. And now, there's a fork in the narrative. We're going to take this fork for the time being. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs> End of story. Okay. Now, there is another fork in the narrative, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. Now, that actually is the basic nuts and bolts of this story. So I'm going to rule a line underneath that. That was part one. Now we're going to move on to part two, which is the role that this story has played in Indic and broader society over the millennia. And I'm going to start with another verse. Vina Vedam Vinagitam Vina Ramayanim Katam Vina Kavim Kalidasam Bharatam Bharatam Nahi Vina Vedam Without the Vedas, you know what the Vedas are? The Vedas are the foundational documents of the Hindu tradition. Vina Vedam Vina Gitam What's the Gitam? Bhagavad Gita. Without the Bhagavad Gita, with, without Vina Ramayanim Katam, without the story of Ramayanam, Vina Kavim Kalidasam, without Shakespeare. Did I say Shakespeare? Sorry, I meant Kalidasa. Very easy to confuse the two. Without Kalidasa, <laughs> Bharatam, Bharatam Nahi, India would not be India. Without the Vedas, without the Gita, without Ramayanam, without Kalidasa, India would not be India. This, I've, I've chosen this verse to give you some sense of the extraordinary centrality to the idea of India, on, of Indianness, that this text occupies. Now, how am I going to do this? This, uh, the Sanskrit text was written down sometime between 200 before the current era and 200 after the current era. No one knows how old it is. Do you believe that a Sanskrit scholar sat in a room, a back room in a royal palace and wrote 24,000 verses of Sanskrit off the top of his head just <laughs> like that? Or 
do you believe that people were telling themselves the story, a folk story of this wonderful prince called Rama and his beautiful wife Sita? That this story was well known, that it existed in many vernacular traditions, in the oral tradition, until one day a scholar sitting in the back room of the palace wrote it down. I'm, I think we have to believe the second. We have no evidence, we have no way of knowing. It will never be known who actually wrote this, whether it was first a literary text or an oral text. And quite frankly, I've never really bought this distinction, this dichotomy between the written and the oral. If I tell you a story, it's an oral text. If I go home and read it, it's a written text. If you read it aloud, it becomes an oral text again. So I, I, I don't actually buy this distinction to tell the truth. Be that as it may, this text has been around probably for 2,000 years. It is attributed to Valmiki, who is known as the Adi Kavi, the first poet. The text itself is known as Adi Kavyam, the first poem. And again, this gives you a sense for the centrality of this in the Indic tradition. In this sense, every other piece of Indian literature is in some way derived ultimately from Ramayanam. Now, funny thing is that we Western scholars, uh, going back two or three hundred years, first encountered Ramayanam as a written text. The British Orientalists' tutors, their peers, were Brahmin pundits who valorised, prioritised the written Sanskritic tradition. So we, we as Orientalists, and I'm sorry to say we are all in some sense, have actually grown up with uh, prioritising the Sanskritic written tradition. With the invention of anthropology, with the invention of ethnography, we finally come to realise that there are hundreds and hundreds of oral traditions. That Ramayanam exists as strongly in the oral tradition, in the vernacular traditions, as it does in the written Sanskritic tradition. Not only does it exist, of course, in, in uh, oral tradition, it exists and flavours, it's expressed in every conceivable art form, every conceivable form of, of cultural expression. Uh, visual art, sculpture, song, music, dance, uh, on temple walls. My friend and colleague, uh, Pandit Dr. Anant Rao, and I had a joint research project in uh, Karnataka some years back. We went to Hampi, a wonderful uh, ruined city from the 15th century. A fabulous temple there with walls round about this size, perhaps, but coming down to floor level. And all the way around were friezes about this big showing adventures, showing episodes from Ramayanam. And this was actually a big wake-up mo moment for me because as Anant and I stood there, there was a guide with uh, a family, an Indian family, and one by one he was going through the story, showing them the pictures and telling them what was going on. And suddenly the penny dropped for me that this is how people experience Ramayanam. This is how it's taught. This has been the way it's been taught for 2,000 years, very much as a living tradition of people telling the story based on one art form or another. Now, I need to say this, and perhaps you would like to contradict me, but it is often said that no Indian remembers the first time they heard the story of Rama. No Indian remembers the first time they heard the story of Rama. It's like us, what was the first time we ever heard the story of Cinderella? Nobody can remember that. What's the first time you ever heard the story of, of, of Robin Hood? You don't remember that because this is so much part of the culture that you absorb it literally with your mother's milk. In fact, your grandmother probably told you these stories on hot afternoons when you're having a bit of a snooze. So, so within Indian society, people have grown up with this story uh, as an in inherent part of their being. And I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here and I'm going to say that to be Indian is at least in part to have internalised these narratives. 
to be Indian is at least in part to have internalised these narratives. These narratives become part of your inner being. So we got as far as the, the, the temple walls and of course Ramayanam has occupied every medium as it has come forward. So uh, it was enormously popular on tel in television in the 1980s. It was enormously popular on, online. Now, of course, I've got the uh, uh, Ramayanam phone app. Uh, <laughs> you know, and this is just one of hundreds of Ramayanam phone apps. So uh, every medium that comes forward, uh, Ramayanam is re-expressed in a new way. So what I need to... Uh, quickly do now, Look, I, I just want to talk a little bit very briefly about the cultural breath. The breath. There's a wonderful term coined by Sheldon Pollock, uh, a, leader, uh, a leading uh, scholar of literary studies, particularly Indic studies. He coined the term Sanskrit cosmopolis. So you know what cosmopolis means? It means a city of the universe, a universal city. He's coined the idea of a Sanskrit cosmopolis, which embraces the cultural area from Bali in the east, through Java, through ma mainland Southeast Asia, through India, through to Afghanistan in the west, from Sri Lanka in the south to Mongolia in the north. This is the Sanskritic cosmopolis. And throughout this world, throughout this universe, uh, Ramayanam has been a cultural pillar. In what sense? I, I think of uh, epic tropes as being a little bit like a game of chess. So in every game of chess there's going to be a king which can move like this or a queen which can move like this or a knight which moves like this. Every chess set has the same figures. Every chess Figure, every chess man is capable of a particular set of moves and yet every game of chess is different. I see these epic tropes as being something like this. Every time somebody makes use of Ramayanam, it's going to have a Rama, it's going to have a Sita, it's going to have a Lakshmana, it's going to have a Ravana, but the use to which they put these figures, these characters, is going to be different. And I just want to give you a little bit of a, uh, a taste of the way that these different, uh, uh, different figures have been used. Here's, here's one way. There is an orthodox Brahminical use of this text. You remember we got to the point where the, there was a fork in the narrative. There was ending A and ending, ending B. Ending A is a happy ending. Ending B we got Sita through her fire test and they were living happily ever after, weren't they? However, in this ending, there was a rumour. A washerman said to one of his customers, you know, I think Sita was actually living in the house of another man. She couldn't possibly be chaste. Rama heard of this rumour and although Sita was pregnant with twins, in order to preserve the honour of his house, she was expelled into the forest and lived ever after in the forest. Sad ending, okay? <laughs> Completely different from the happy ending. Now, this ending has been used, uh, I'm, I'm calling it by a, a, by a Brahmanical interest to show the importance of holding up the dharma, the honour of the family. So that's one use to which this story has been put and this, this particular use dates back at least 2,000 years. So often this story has what we regard actually as a rather tragic ending but an ending in which dharma, correct behaviour, is maintained. That's one use. All over India women sing songs about Sita. Often women in difficult situations We'll sing about the strength of Sita. There's some, there's some wonderful episodes where Sita actually gives Ravana a little bit of back chat. And so this is very empowering. So women will sing songs about Sita giving back chat to Ravana. And this is a way of, of empowering themselves or expressing their own frustration at their disempowered situation. Now here's a nice story as well. 
you remember I said that they crossed the Ganges River? You remember that? Now, there is a community of boatmen. Has anyone been to Benares? To Benares? Did you take a boat ride on, the, on Ganga? Everyone who goes to Benares takes, a, takes a, a, boat, a boat ride. Those boatmen traditionally were classified by the British as being of a criminal caste. <laughs> so they're said to be very, very low, very low. And those boatmen, in the not very recent past, have reinvented themselves and they have created a myth for themselves. And they said, well, you remember Rama was ferried across the river. Who ferried him? We ferried him. We are the ferrymen of Rama. And so to call us uh, criminal castes is completely wrong. We are noble. We are noble ferrymen. So they have appropriated these epic discourses as a way of uh, uh, re-establishing their legitimacy as a community. This is how they make sense of their life. Uh, there's uh, another, an, another absolutely fascinating appropriation of the story of Rama in South India. Now, India has, has there's always been tension between North and South, between the Hindi speakers of the North and the Dravidian speakers of the South. Uh, really starting from the 1920s, uh, a strong uh, uh, Tamil nationalist movement uh, has grown up trying to hold back this, this northern uh, Hindi-speaking uh, hegemony. One of the ways they've done this is to reinvent the Ramayana. Rama is no longer a hero. Rama is one of those terrible northerners who's coming down here telling us what to do and what language to speak. Him and his wife, Sita. The real hero of this story is, of course, Ravana. Ravana is a southerner. He's dark, he's swarthy, he's like us. And he fought against Rama. So they've completely turned Ramayana on, their, on its head as a way of expressing their own life, their own situation. Uh, you remember I mentioned there is a bridge that built by monkeys and monkeys and bears between the mainland and, uh, and Sri Lanka. Over and over again in the Indian media, you will read stories that NASA has confirmed that there really is a bridge. <laughs> it really is true. And we've got the satellite images to prove it. Look, you can see there's a bridge going across there. Therefore, Ramayanam must be true. Therefore, us brown people are at least as good, if not better, than you white people. That's what it says to me. This is a very strong post-colonialist response, uh, a, 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 a post-colonialist appropriation of uh, Ramayanam. And I always maintain Ramayanam can stand on its own two feet. It doesn't need NASA to prop it up. Anyway, so this is another story. I'm just giving you that as one example, another example of how these epic discourses are appropriated for people to make sense of their lives. I want to give you one more example and then I'll stop. Nina Paley, Sita Sings the Blues. Has anyone heard of this? Nina Paley, Sita Sings the Blues. You haven't heard of this. You have. One out of a hundred. This is terrible. Only one out of a hundred people have heard of Sita Sings the Blues. Nina Paley is an extremely talented American animator. She created a, a, a film which is in the public domain. You can watch it on YouTube. It's called Sita Sings the Blues. Nina Paley's husband left her completely inexplicably. Her, her long-term marriage fell apart and it hit her like a truck. She had no idea it was coming. Nina Paley has created this extraordinary film, an animated film called Sita Sings the Blues, in which she ties the traditional story of Rama, not unlike I told you just now. She ties in, uh, uh, a f I think you would call it a feminist critique through her own lived experience. And she is able to make sense of her life through Ramayanam, just as her husband inexplicably rejected her, so too did Rama inexplicably reject Sita. And it ends 
with some sort of uh, internal uh, recognition and peace that she derives from this narrative. I'm going to stop now with a conclusion. My argument is that because the epic gives people the language and the symbols to make sense of their lives. So, Brahmins make sense of their lives this way, Nina Palin makes sense of her life this way, the Tamils make sense of their life this way. Because the epic gives people the language and the sense, the, uh, the language and the symbols to make sense of their lives, Ramayana itself is evergreen. It is perennial. To understand India, you have to understand Ramayana. To understand humanity, you have to understand India. Now I finish. I say, Atoham Bravimi. Therefore, I say, Yavat stasyanti giraya saritascha mahitale tavat ramayani katha lokeshu pracharishyati. As long as the mountains stand, as long as the rivers flow, so too the story of Rama will pervade humanity. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, if anybody would like to have a look, this is a beautiful edition dating from 1934. I'll, I'll open it up so you can see it. Yeah, that, that's all. Perhaps as we're, as we're circulating. Yeah, much like the, the angel in the historian, angel in the house, that, um, and Virginia Woolf uh, said it very hard to, as you said, it sort of uh, part of their whole, their psyche embedded deeply in so just, it's very hard to get rid of a fan, the phantom. Uh, the, the angel. Okay, can I respond to that? Did, did everyone hear that? Yeah. Roughly, okay. So, uh, so yes, in the hands of patriarchs, in the hands of hierarchs, this, in the hands of men, this text is used to support patriarchy, hierarchy, and, and uh, the, subor the subordination of women. In the hands of many, many other groups, societies and communities, these epic tropes are used for completely the opposite purpose. And for example, I use the idea of the, the boatmen of Varanasi who use epic tropes uh, to subvert the hierarchy. So in, in that sense, the tropes themselves are neutral, but they may be put to use or activated by different communities for different purposes. But uh, certainly in the hands of uh, particularly a, a Brahminical uh, Orthodox uh, community, these tropes uh, are used for, uh, you and I, I think, would agree, socially conservative ends, but that is not the only way that they are used, and I hope I've demonstrated that. When you were giving your presentation, I was thinking in two ways. One, with the Indian diaspora, <coughs> is how much is this tradition going wherever Indians go, which is just about everywhere but Antarctica. <laughs> and, and, you know, and you, and you pointed to the uh, smartphone or whatever. And the other thing is that at the beginning I was picking up little vibes that are very similar to European sagas, you know, in terms of the way people behave. Is there some type of common origin or influence given in Indo-Sanskrit languages? <laughs> All right, so, so two questions. Uh, and I've, the first question I, I might answer just by saying, Lokeshu Pracharishyati. It's going to spread everywhere, so certainly wherever there's an Indian community, but, but much more than that as well. Uh, uh, secondly, so uh, yes, there are many similarities between uh, European epic traditions and South Asian epic traditions. Do they come from a common source? Uh, I think uh, people are inclined to say probably yes, but then when you look at epic heroes from traditions that are most certainly unrelated, so uh, Middle American epic traditions, indigenous Australian epic traditions. Epic heroes are always, a, quite frankly, they're about wafer thin. They don't have that sort of uh, psychological uh, dimension to them. So I think maybe the epic form, if you want to tell the story about a hero in a great big battle and how he overcomes hardships, it, it's, I think maybe it, it's, uh, uh, 
common to many cultures that there end up being similarities, even if there aren't genetic similarities that you can find. But they do, they do talk about uh, Indo-European uh, epic uh, archetypes, but I, I'm not sure how true that is or not. The idea of the travelling bard who uh, uh, recited these, uh, these stories to, well, to the next village, is that the sort of thing that would have been the case in India, or did everybody know that themselves? Or? <laughs> uh, uh, everybody knows them themselves. Uh, villagers have highly accomplished storytellers, but also, of course, then there is a, there is a more elite. Uh, Sanskrit is not the language of, of the marketplace. Sanskrit has always been an elite language, a language of a scholarly. Uh, and priestly elite, very much like Latin in pre-modern Europe. Uh, so, in fact, to this very day, we have highly qualified, highly skilled pundits, like my friend and colleague, pundit, pundit Dr. Anant Rao, who is with us this evening, who uh, gives the most wonderful performances of Valmiki's Ramanam in Sanskrit with a commentary in the vernacular. And this is, this is one of the many, many ways in which these stories are told. But there's certainly, certainly um, a, a tradition of, of travelling storytellers as well. Tell us something about the Ramayana in the context of Indonesia and why it's so central there. It's primarily Islamic and, I mean, other than, say, Bali. Well, again, as part of... So, so Ramayana, or... They, so your pronunciation is better than mine. Ramayana, you call it... Uh, Ramayana, you call it in Indonesian. I, I fight against that wherever I go, but yes. Um, <laughs> Ramayana in Indonesia, again, it, it's, it's an, uh, deeply entrenched into uh, Indonesianness, in spite of 600 years of Islam. Uh, so Wayang Kulit, of course, in Bali, where, where the culture is, is a Hindu culture, these, uh, these figures are enormously popular and enormously well-known. Uh, in Java, Wayang Kulit, I think, You've got a 50-50 chance if you're seeing Wayang Kulit that it's going to be Ramayanam. If it's not Ramayanam, it's going to be Mahabharatam. So it's going to be one or other of the two great uh, Indian epics. Um, so uh, uh, how, how this interacts with uh, uh, local um, uh, Islam, I don't know. What's going to happen to these traditions uh, if, if Islam becomes more, becomes more restrictive? and less accepting in Indonesia, uh, I don't know either. But certainly these traditions are enormously alive and well in, in Bali anyway. But I'm sorry, it's really a bit out of my field. All religious texts are really colonizing texts. And it seems to me that by making this great epic Ramayana, which is a fabulous story and you told it so beautifully in for a brief time, by making it into a religious text, we have reduced the literary value of these states. And it seems to me that the consequence of that is that when Mahatma Gandhi said Ram Rajya want independent India, he was assassinated by the high caste Brahmins. And then uh, you have Hindutva movement now, you have Ram Janam Bhumi, you have evolution. So it has done a lot of damage from that po point of view. The, the Australian cricketers are still in Sri Lanka and fighting the demons, so to speak. <laughs> but the point I'm making is that if you, f if you make it into a religious text, you are really demonizing a whole culture in the South, as well as the great tragedy of this marvelous epic. Yes. It should have remained a literary text, like the Iliad or the Odyssey. I'm, I'm going to make uh, another point here, and that is that round about the 15th or 16th century, it became realized that Rama was actually God. And when I say God, I mean God with a capital G. This is like realizing all of a sudden, actually, Robin Hood is Jesus Christ. This actually, <laughs> this actually totally changes the story. And Ramayanam went from being a ripping yarn to being a highly revered sacred text. And again, there is a community, let's call them Paktas, the, the, devotees for whom this is indeed a sacred text and, and as a result of this being a sacred text we have, as you say, 
Ram Janmabhumi, we have all of these, these, these issues. We have the issues surrounding Ram Raj. So, so in many ways the text is appropriated by what we might call Hindu nationalists or Hindu uh, activists, is a more neutral term perhaps, again for their own uses, to promote a Hindu India. What's the problem with a Hindu India? Well, 20% of the population is not Hindu. That's what the problem is. So, again, I speak in defence of the text. I say the, the text is a set of neutral tropes that can be activated by different communities in different ways. When it's activated by what we might call Hindu right, Hindu activists, Hindutva, it can be put to purposes that you and I probably don't agree with. It can be used, these, these tropes can be used for, for positive outcomes, they can be used for negative outcomes. The tropes themselves, I believe, are by and large neutral. Well, I was distinguished as you in India once, and I asked why Rama never took <laughs> Indians to fight the battle in Sri Lanka. <laughs> 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 Indians would have come after being defeated by Rama. Luckily, he took the monkeys and went very well. Such a good question. Such a good question. So this is the this is the wonderful playfulness that, that this story brings out. Where, where were the Indians? Why is he talking? Why is he fighting with these monkeys? Good question. There's no answer. You should write. You could write us an answer. Transporting me back to my childhood days when I saw the televised version. So I'm interested in this narrative too, uh, which is the sad sad ending uh, that you say. Uh, how recent uh, or what is the history of this ending? Because uh, Fairly recently, uh, I've been seeing this ending televised in the in Indian uh, version of uh, uh, Ramayana. But uh, we used to hear about this happy ending. So would you say uh, uh, it, uh, the history of this narration too, uh, it, it goes to 18th century when the Britishers came out? No, no, way before that, uh, Vibor. It's way before that. So in fact, uh, the, the Ramayana as it stands at the moment has the sad ending in it. But many scholars, and it actually comes in the last book, the, the, the Uttarakhanda. Many scholars believe that that last book is less ancient than the, the central part of the text. Now, whether, it, whether, it, uh, whether it's 500 years less ancient, whether it's 200 years less ancient, nobody knows. But certainly, that, that what we call the sad ending, ending B, has been in, in the canon, it's been canonical, for at least 1500 years. So this is not a recent invention. But interestingly enough, I think Ram, you, could, you know more about this than I do, Ram Charit Manas, for example, the most popular uh, medieval uh, retelling in, in Avadi, uh, doesn't have the sad ending, does it? What happens to Sita in Ram Charit Manas? Well, there's Chaya Sita, I think, isn't there? It's, or is it the happy ending? It has a happy ending. So again, there, there are many, many varieties of this story. And many, many versions of the story. And the, the canonical version uh, has the uh, Sita being exiled in the end, uh, and that must be at least 1,500 years after. So there are many things we can blame on the British, but I don't think we can blame <laughs> them. <laughs> we, we studied the Mahabharata a lot more because apparently the characters are supposed to be more relatable for people in this era where they're making a lot of mistakes. Ah, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, I really like your point about uh, characters in Mahabharata being, being more complex. Uh, Rama is all good. Sita is always lovely. Nothing ever goes, you know, they never get dirty. But uh, Mahabharata, and may I please come and speak about Mahabharata in 2026? <laughs> 2026. Yes, thank you. Book. Good. Mahabharata is the other great Indian epic, and of course, I, I would love to speak about that one day. Perhaps the most defining difference between Ramayanam and Mahabharatam is contained in this, uh, this saying from Mahabharatam, no good man is entirely good, no bad man is entirely bad. So the, the characters are much more three-dimensional. They do make mistakes. Uh, uh, Yudhishthira, the son of Dharma, tells a lie. Bhima, the, the great warrior, hits a man on his leg. You just can't do that. <laughs> they, use, they use tricks. 
to get their own way. It's a much trickier text. Uh, and in that sense, there's more psychological depth. Uh, the, the, the characters are, are more, more tormented by fate, I think, perhaps, than Ramayana. Version I've heard, I'm half South Indian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's a good guy, right? He's a good guy. Father's side. Father's side is North Indian. I've heard both versions. But <laughs> 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 in, my, in the South Indian version, he isn't the demon king, but the greatest purveyor of knowledge. He's the yeah, 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 yeah. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. <laughs> he, he, he treated Sita well, and he was just defending his sister. So I think it's wrong to reduce him to a demon king when he was supposedly a good man. His <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, I, I totally agree. We we often hear this said as well. He's highly educated. He's the most perfect devotee of Shiva. Uh, all of these all of these good things as well. Uh, so again, here is the trope of Ravana, and what you do with you use this trope of Ravana to make sense of your own life. Thank you. Was there a process by religious leaders to determine that this was a canonical text? Uh, Hindu traditions don't really have leaders. Uh, every, th th there isn't a pope, or a, it's it's much more uh, it's much more it's a flat structure. Uh, how did? Can I change your question around and say how did uh, this version of Ramayanam become canonical? And I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that <laughs> question. Uh, Anand, can you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can. I just did. <laughs> uh, how did Valmiki's Ramayanam become canonical? Well, in fact, this, this, there are many manuscripts. There are thousands of manuscripts. Each manuscript is slightly different. There are different manuscript traditions. So no one manuscript is canonical, but Valmiki, the genre as a whole, is canonical and has been for a very long time. Anand, can you bail me out? divine element and 
trying to relate it to the look, these epics also mm. demonstrate the same thing, supremacy of Vishnu or somebody else. And you could never, never uh, really nail it down, but it's probably traceable to the three Acharyas. Yes, yeah, yes. Uh, and it's a ripping yarn. It's beautifully written. Uh, it's very old. It's in Sanskrit, which is the elite language. So it, it had everything going for it. It's, uh, plus the backing of the three great Acharyas in the south as well. Um, you talk about the good ending, the happy ending, and the sad ending. But even in the sad ending, there are versions where it's not all bad for Sita because she returns to. Uh, in yeah. Throughout Southeast Asia, there's accounts where she returns to Mother Earth. Yes, yes, yes. All, you know, she sort of turns it around and says, I'll have these children and I'll raise them, but. Yes. I've had enough of you. Yes, yes. I'm back. Uh, yes, it's true. When I say the sad ending, that, that actually is also in, in, in Valmiki. So she's empowered herself. I'd have to have another look at it. But, but uh, Sita, the name Sita actually means furrow, F-U-R-R-O-W. She, she, she arose from the earth. Uh, and uh, like? Adam. Like Adam. Adam from, uh, okay. And... Um, at the end, at the sad, the sad story, Mother Earth opens and receives Sita back in again. Now, I don't reckon that's all that totally happy, but uh, <laughs> but yes, you're quite right. It comes down to how you can take that story. You can take that and story and make it powerful. Now, yeah. A lot of women might go, oh, this is a, a strange story that doesn't necessarily fit in with how I see my place in the world. Yes, yes. How you can turn it around, like someone doing Sita Singh for good. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And in fact, so Nina Paley took that sad ending and she actually made it very powerful as well. So again, the, I, I maintain the tropes are fairly neutral. What you do with them imbues them with this meaning and significance. I'm interested, Macarius, in the idea of, of the appropriation but also in, there must be something in the text itself that, as it were, lends itself to or invites a kind of reinterpretation in a way, or is this not true? I'm thinking particularly of something like the, the famous statement that William Blake made about the Paradise Lost, that Milton was actually of the Devil's Party without realising. Mm, mm. But is there a sense in which the author or authors might have been partly of the Devil's Party in a way, that the text itself actually justifies the ambiguity that allows the appropriation so that we can, as it were in the South, turn it on its head. We can identify in Ravana? Is mm, yeah, Ravana, yes. Ravana. yes yeah. We can identify in Ravana some of the qualities that, that, that make it possible to tempt us to turn that text around. Uh, I, think, uh, I think to answer that, it's important to remember that Valmiki's Ramayanam in Sanskrit is only one of many Ramayanams. Right. Uh, and all the time there are these competing, uh, there's this wonderful chaos of oral traditions, uh, southern traditions, vernacular traditions, and you can take out of those whatever you like. It, you couldn't find an argument for Ravana being the good guy and Rama being the bad guy out of Valmiki's Ramayanam. But out of the vernacular tradition, which is much more, uh, much less restricted, uh, fluid, open, you can find whatever you like. Mm. Yeah. It's not so severely judgmental of Ravana. Ravana's character comes across as more as a tragic, flawed hero. Mm. Mm. It's, it's, it's not that. I think that simplistic. Uh, Simplified, even in Tulsi Das, which is so co so popular, 
she's cursed because she fell for this, you know, the king of gods, she's cursed to be a stone. Valmiki is not this case. She becomes not noticed by society. There's a much more subtle mm. judgment mm. than, uh, you know, in other words, the Valmiki, Ramayana, Ravana is also the same. In fact, he says to Sita, it is the law of my tribe to take another man's wife by force or otherwise. So it is, in fact, you got this classic case of conflict of laws. You know, you, if you, you know, if you have had this situation even, even here in the Northern Territory as to whether magistrates have had this dilemma as to whether they should tolerate certain behavior by men in uh, tribal communities simply because it is their traditional law. And that is in conflict with the modern law. He says, by my tribal law, what I'm doing is not illegal. Even so, I will not touch you unless you are coming to, willing to come to me out of your own mm -hmm. will and desire. Mm -hmm. So in other words, this, this is what Valmiki says. Mm -hmm. So the Valmiki Ramayana is much, much more uh, subtle and much less judgmental mm -hmm. of all the characters. Mm -hmm. The, the, the wife number three, yes. Yeah. 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 There is a story of how Valmiki came to write. Ah, uh, most certainly there is. Yeah, and if you go into the birth of poetry, yes. how that is all written and you see this boat in church and the cry of the... Let's not give it away. There is a wonderful, wonderful story on how, of how Valmiki came to compose Ramayana. Right. This very story is, one, is most beautifully told, again, by Pandit Dr. Anant Rao uh, in a musical performance where he incorporates uh, both the, the uh, Sanskrit and he tells the story most wonderfully uh, in English. And if you ask him very sweetly, he will uh, give this performance for us <laughs> as a university. Uh, some if you look at the literary text, then it says all the ambivalences, ambiguities, nuances. Uh, after all, somebody told me Sita left with Rama because she wanted to escape three mothers in the world. But if you treat a literary text and the subtleties are there, which Professor Rao is talking about, but if you make it into a religious text and the fight between good and evil produces mm. this great text into mm. something very ordinary. Mm. Yes, yes. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.